Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and turn them open to Mark chapter 5. If you do not have a Bible, know there's one provided in the pew in front of you to use. If you do not own a Bible, know that there are some available on the table in the foyer. Feel free to grab one of those on your way out. We'd love to gift you with your own copy of the Scriptures. Uh, We're turning to Mark chapter 5 this evening, and we're focusing on the gospel for the disillusioned. Every year, uh, Red Lobster rolls out what's called Crab Fest. I don't know if any of you are Red Lobster fans or if you frequent that restaurant. Probably not, and for good reason. But every year, they really ratchet up an aggressive marketing campaign. They really go hard after this thing called Crab Fest. And so they really roll, they start rolling out numerous commercials with all these flashy shots of what a crab feast looks like. And these commercials, they carry with them uh, just vibrant colors. And the, t- the plates just have full portions And usually when someone grabs a crab leg or something like that, the the camera will zero in on it and and it snaps and it cracks and it pops. And when it does, just the the crab meat inside just blossoms out, just looking luscious and unbelievably full. And so it's a commercial that really, if if you're into that, kind of whets your appetite for the crab feast. And so you may decide to visit Red Lobster as a result of the commercial that you see. But if you do, be warned. If you do, be warned. Know that if you go, you may discover a disconnect between the commercial and the experience, between what they project and how, what they actually deliver. You may be incredibly disappointed when the, when the plate comes your way and it's dropped at your table and you pick up a crab leg and you try to snap it the way they do on the commercials, only you find that it doesn't really snap. It just kind of bends and, and tears open. And then when you finally are able to tear the crab open, it The meat just doesn't blossom out, not usually anyways. I apologize any red lobster fanatics, but typically the crab meat doesn't blossom out just lusciously. Instead, you get about a half-filled piece of crab. Uh, It's kind of dried up, a little little shriveled up. It's as though the crab just spent a little too much time sunbathing before it was brought to your table. I mean, it's it's just a dry piece of meat. And so when you do that and you have that experience where you start trying to reconcile in your mind, well, well, The commercial said this, but my experience is that. When you have that disconnect happen in your experience, all of a sudden you undergo what's called disillusionment. When you have disillusionment, that's what's going on. You see, disillusionment occurs when there is a, when our experiences contradict our expectations. When experiences contradict expectations, when the commercial doesn't match reality, that's when disillusionment creeps in. And this is a common experience for all of us as we journey through the world that is. Disillusionment is a very common experience because every one of us carries certain expectations into every setting we step into in life. And the problem with disillusionment, the reason why it is so common, is because our experiences can contradict that which we expect from life. For example, some of you have stepped into marriage with certain expectations, thinking marriage would be, uh, it it would resemble that which you watched on all the romantic comedies growing up. But then you step into the real world of flesh and blood, and all of a sudden your experience in marriage doesn't match that expectation that was informed from the wrong source, and marriage proves to be harder than you might expect. 
Or we have kids and we bring expectations into parenting, thinking, well, parenting is going to be easy. I'm going to get them. They're going to listen to me. I might see other kids not really listening to their moms and dads, but I'm going to do it right. And so I'm going to really discipline my kids. They're going to do what I say. They're going to, they're going to obey me. They're not going to cry on the airplane. They're not going to embarrass me in public. And all of a sudden you become a parent and your experience contradicts that expectation. And all of a sudden you become disillusioned. We carry expectations into our friendships and our relationships. We have certain expectations that we have for those around us. And if we do not experience them matching our expectations, then disillusionment surfaces and we become frustrated in the relationship. We become disappointed in the friendship. Perhaps some of you are students at Seattle Pacific University and you know that two years ago today there was a shooting on the campus. Something happened that no one expected. And the experience of, of being so close to that, some of you in relationship with the victim and, and even the perpetrator, you, you got this moment where disillusionment surfaces as there's a contradiction between what you expect to go down on a campus like SBU and the experience of somebody doing something so tragic. When there's a disconnect between our expectations and our experiences, disillusionment surfaces. And this can happen by what we experience from life But then you can go one step further as we think about this tonight. You can go one step further and understand that disillusionment, that our experiences can contradict even that which we expect from Christ. And sometimes we may step into a relationship with Christ and we bring certain expectations to the table thinking that life is going to get easier because we've put our faith in Jesus. We're following Christ. Everything's going to be on an upswing from here on out. But then reality sets in. And you find that in many ways life gets harder after you meet Jesus than it was before you met Jesus. All of a sudden, there's a battle within you that you didn't know was there before you met Jesus. All of a sudden, your conscience is disturbing you about things that you used to be comfortable with, and change is hard. And then when that change comes slowly, it becomes frustrating and disillusionment can surface because you have an expectation. Life should get easier after I meet Jesus. But then your experience says otherwise. Your experience contradicts that. And so we can become disillusioned even as disciples who are following Christ through the world that is. Or you consider even the passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago about Jesus actually leading his disciples into the middle of a storm. You might have the expectation that Jesus would never do that. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in the hard place. You find yourself in the middle of a storm and you're asking all these questions Jesus, did did I uh, make a wrong turn in following you? Am I not listening to you? Because if I was, Jesus, you you wouldn't lead me into this hard moment, would you? And if you would, Jesus, if you would lead me into the middle of a storm, surely you're not gonna be found sleeping in the stern of the boat while I'm afraid and anxious and panicking about everything that seems to be falling apart around me. And so sometimes we carry expectations into our relationship with Christ that do not conform to all that the gospel, all that God promises to be for us in the gospel. And so what we want to think about tonight is how the gospel relates to our disillusionment. How can our expectations be filled up with a, with a balanced and a robust understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus expects from us so that we might be able to interpret our experiences and our journey through this world, we might be able to interpret those experiences well in light of the gospel. 
And so we're going to consider this as we step into this story found in Mark chapter 5 because we're introduced in this passage to two people who've grown disillusioned for different reasons. The first guy we're introduced to is named Jairus. And all of a sudden, you can imagine his disillusionment being tied to his relationship with God because we're told in verse 22 that this guy was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, when you think about Jairus being a ruler of the synagogue, this means he was a respected leader. He was a, a leader in society. Everyone respected him. Everyone looked up to him. And what's cool about being a ruler in the synagogue is that this was a volunteer position. He wasn't paid to organize the gatherings that would take place in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He did it voluntarily. He did it out of the kindness of his own heart. He did it out of a desire to serve his God. So he was a good man. He was a respectable man. He was a religious man. He was a leader many people looked up to. But yet Jairus, we find him in this moment, perhaps becoming disillusioned in his relationship with his God. Perhaps he's thinking to himself as he considers his 12-year-old daughter who's now sick and on the brink of death. And maybe he's asking the question, God, I've been serving you. I've been doing all these things. Why is my daughter sick? And you can imagine disillusionment creeping in to, in response to that thought process. I've been serving you, God, and yet this is going down. And, and because he's so disillusioned in the system of religion that he's a part of, he runs to the last person you would expect a ruler in the synagogue to run to. Jairus actually runs to Jesus, and he falls down before Jesus, and, she, and he asks Jesus for help. And this is surprising because Jairus is a part of the religious system that has been growing in its opposition against Jesus all throughout the book of Mark. There's been this opposition being launched in Jesus' direction by other religious leaders, by other Jewish teachers, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, and presumably the rulers of the synagogue such as Jairus. But he's become so disillusioned with that system and his understanding of who God is that was tied to that world. He's now running to Jesus, the last person you'd expect him to go to. He runs and he falls before Jesus' feet and he says to him, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And you notice in verse 24 that Jesus decides to go with him. Jesus responds to this man's request. He says, Yes, I'll go. Let's go take care of your daughter. But in the meantime, as they're journeying towards Jairus' home, another person is introduced to us, another one who is disillusioned, another one who is desperate. We're introduced to a woman, not by her name, but by her condition. We're told that this woman, in verse 25, that she had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She's been sick for a long time. This condition that is causing her to bleed perpetually for 12 years has been plaguing her. And like anyone who's sick or anyone who has some type of condition, they want to get better. And she's tried all the solutions. We're told in verse 25 that she's done everything in her power to heal herself or to get well. In verse 26, it says that although she suffered, it says that she suffered much under many physicians. She had lots of doctors speaking into her situation. Not only did she have lots of doctors trying to give her help, she spent all of her money. She exhausted her resources trying to get better. But then we're told at the end of that that after spending all that she had, she was no better, but she actually got worse. And so whereas Jairus' disillusionment may have come out of the line of thinking, God, I've been serving you, why is this going down? You find disillusionment in this woman that takes the form of, man, I've tried everything in this world. 
and none of it's working. I've tried doctors. I've tried money. I've done everything that I can to bring healing to my body, and none of it's working. So for 12 years, I've been suffering this affliction. And there is a connection between the 12 years attached to this woman's condition and Jairus' daughter being 12 years of age. You can imagine, you can imagine how that little detail leads us to think that this condition has so defined this woman that she can't even imagine life before those 12 years began. 12 years in her condition is a lifetime. She's defined by it. And as a result of her condition, she hasn't been able to function fully in society. She hasn't been able to step into the synagogue and worship with God's people. She hasn't been to go to, able to go to parties because everyone viewed her as defiled. Everyone viewed her as unclean. And if you come in contact with a woman struggling with what she was struggling with, you too could be rendered unclean. You too could be exiled from worship at the synagogue and other social settings of the first century. And so you have Jairus, disillusioned, perhaps in his relationship with God. I've been serving you, and this is going down. You have this unnamed woman, disillusioned by all, this, all the solutions that she's been able to, the potential solutions she's been able to find in this world, saying, I've tried everything. And when she reaches her breaking point, when she's come to this moment, she catches wind that Jesus is walking by, and so what does she do? She does exactly what Jairus does. does. She runs to Jesus. It says in verse 27 that she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And so she goes, she goes to Jesus. Here you have two people who could not be any more different from one another. You have Jairus, a named, known religious leader. And you have this woman, unnamed, unknown, considered ceremonially unclean. Both of them are in desperate situations. Both of them are disillusioned. As I've been reading through this passage and just thinking about the contrast between Jairus and this woman, the REM song has been playing in my head. Everybody hurts sometimes, right? Because that's the reality of the world that we live in. Everybody hurts sometimes. Everybody will be disillusioned by someone or something in this world. Everyone will be driven to desperation as a result of various things that can and inevitably will happen in the world that is. And so the question then becomes, when we find ourselves disillusioned, when we find ourselves desperate, where do we go? Will we do as they are doing in this moment and run to Jesus? Their desperation actually drives them, drives them both to Jesus, but in different ways. There's a guy by the name of Temple Thurston who wrote a book called The City of Beautiful Nonsense. It's a fascinating title, The City of Beautiful Nonsense. And in it, he talks about how we and our prosperity, how we, when things are going well, we're inclined to treat life like a circus. And so we envision ourselves as kind of being the masters of the ceremonies. We, we step out into the ring and we're wearing our silk hat and we're decked out in our garb and we're cracking a whip and we have everything in, under control. Everything is as it should be and things are going well. And so we live our lives as though we're controlling everything. But then he says, but then, but then there always comes a moment when a lion breaks out of the cage what do you do when the lion breaks out of the cage? Thurston would say in that moment, it's as though life gets up and looks at you in the face. What are you going to do in response? 
For Jairus and this woman, life has stood up and is now looking them in the face. Hard realities are in front of them. And both of them do what we would encourage, right? Both of them run to Jesus. Both of them go to find help from the only one who could ultimately help them. And so perhaps life has stood up and is looking you in the face right now. Perhaps you've grown disillusioned about something. Perhaps you were disappointed with something and you're wondering what to do. You're wondering, can you handle this situation? Can you handle this circumstance? Can you handle this feeling of inadequacy and obscurity that you may be wrestling with? And so the question is, what do you, what do, you do with that disillusionment? And I think one of the reasons why this story is recorded for us in the book of Mark is to show us how faith in Christ is capable of lifting the fog of disillusionment from our lives. That faith in Christ is capable of lifting the fog of disillusionment from our lives. But here's the challenge of the passage. Our faith in Christ must be formed a certain way. Our faith in Christ must grow in a particular direction. And so you find in, I think, this story, the way that it's recorded and given to us today, that, that faith in Christ is capable of lifting the fog of disillusionment from our lives. I want us to just think about faith for a moment. And when you think about faith, faith has two sides. Everyone kind of knows this instinctively, but just let me give you some words for it. Faith has a subjective dimension and an objective dimension. Faith is subjective and objective, and you see both present in this text. Let me show you the subjective nature of faith for a moment. You, you find in this woman and how she responds to Jesus a subjective expression of faith. And what that means for us is that this woman, this woman goes to Jesus even though Jesus is surrounded by a, a large crowd of people, it says in verse 24 that a great crowd followed Jesus. They thronged about him, and she still pressed in. She still went after Jesus because ultimately this kind of faith that we're talking about is personal. Such faith is personal, and that is in contrast with an approximate kind of faith. Although there's a crowd there, many people around Jesus, Jesus singles out one person in the midst of this crowd because one person is showing this kind of faith, a personal faith. Some of you perhaps have been walking with Jesus in a crowd. You've been surrounding yourself with the things of Christianity. You like hanging out with the Christian community because maybe they, they value some of the things that you value. Maybe they're nice to you. Maybe they're friendly to you. And I just want to encourage you, if you find yourself following Jesus in a crowd, at some point in time, you are going to have to press through that crowd. And you are going to have to personally respond to everything that you're hearing about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Because the fine kind of faith that can lift the fog of disillusionment that you will inevitably face in this world, that kind of faith is a personal faith. It is tied to a personal trust you've placed in Jesus. So we're not content with following Christ in a crowd. We want to take ownership of our relationship with Jesus, putting personal faith in him. So let me ask you, are you close to Christ or are you connected with Christ? Are you close or are you connected? The difference makes all the difference. Are you just around Christ and around the things of Christianity or are you connecting with him because you're putting your faith personally in who Jesus is and ultimately what Jesus has accomplished? 
I think this is what you see happening in this woman's life. This is personal faith. She's pressing in, believing Jesus can help her. And when she gets to Jesus, I love the fact that she gets to him. And, and notice what she says, because it's kind of odd. She says, she says, if I can just touch even his garments, I will be made well. And it sounds confident. It sounds positive. It sounds imitatable. If I can just touch his garments, I will be made well. And that's exactly what happened. In verse 29, it says, And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Power came out of Jesus in response to her touch. You see, what you find going on here, not only is that such faith is personal, not approximate, you find that such faith is present, not perfect. When it comes to how Jesus responds to faith in your life, one of the reasons you haven't put personal faith in Jesus is because you think you must have perfect faith before you come to Jesus. There are so many people who know a lot about, uh, who feel like they must know everything there is to know about who Jesus is and what Jesus lived for, died for, and rose again from the grave for before trusting Jesus. And we have this mistaken impression that if I'm going to know Christ, I've got to come to him with a perfect faith. He's only going to respond to me if my faith is filled out with the right kind of substance. But notice this woman's faith. It isn't perfect, but it is present. She's relating to Jesus the way you would relate to a magician. She's relating to Jesus the way you would if you were superstitious. If I could just touch his garments, I will be made well. That's a superstitious kind of faith. But Jesus still responds. Jesus still heals her. Her faith isn't perfect, but it is present. But then notice what she does after. She, she experiences this power come into her. Her body is healed, and then she tries to shrink back into the shadows. So not only do you see that there's a superstition behind her faith, there's even a consumerism behind her faith. She's come to Jesus. She's got what she's needed. Now she's shrinking back into the shadows. She's stepping back into anonymity. She's dropping back into the crowd. But what I love about Jesus is although we come to him with a faith that is present, not perfect, Jesus then takes the time and the effort to inform our faith, to help clarify our faith. And so although she got what she wanted, she shrinks back into the shadows, but Jesus refuses to let her stay there. He doesn't let her stay back in anonymity. He looks at her, realizing once he discovers who, who touched him, that this kind of faith that lifts the fog of disillusionment from our lives is a lot like a plant. It needs sunlight to live. Faith cannot exist in the shadows. Faith must come out in the open. It must come out into the light. And so Jesus calls her out. Because if her faith is going to be fully formed, if her faith is going to grow, she has to step out and not just come up from, to Jesus from behind him. She must stand in front of him and interact with him and learn from him. And ultimately, this is what we all do as disciples. We come to Jesus and we learn from him. He instructs us. He forms our faith. And this is precisely what Jesus does for her in this moment. And so he asks, who is this that touched me? And, and then the woman, knowing what had happened in verse 33, she comes out into public in fear and trembling. She fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. Because not only is this kind of faith that we're talking about personal and present, this type of faith is responsive. She responds to the person of Jesus. She responds to the inquiry of Jesus. This is a responsive faith, not simply a receptive faith. 
You see, a receptive faith says, I'm going to get what I want from Jesus, and then I'm going to go about my days. A receptive faith says, I just want Jesus to give to me. I don't really want to relate to him, but that's not the kind of faith that you see present here. This type of faith is responsive to the person of Jesus, not simply receptive to the power of Jesus. You see, ultimately, Christianity is about being formed in a relationship with the living God. Ultimately, Christianity is about standing before Christ and interfacing with him, communing with him, talking with him, walking with him, serving him, and being served by him. This is what Christianity is all about. It's a responsive faith. And perhaps some of, one of the reasons why some of, your, some of you have a stunted faith is because you've stopped being responsive. You hear the word preached week in and week out, and you don't take it in and then try to figure out how God wants you to respond to it. And if your faith isn't responsive, it's going to shrivel up. If your faith isn't responsive, it's going to look like the crab meat and a crab leg at the Red Lobster. It's going to dry up, shrivel up. It's not going to be luscious. It's not going to be enticing. It's not going to be transformative. There's going to be a breach between your expectations and your experience because that breach isn't being filled by a responsive faith. So you find responsive, a responsive element here. Because ultimately, faith in Jesus is not a private affair. And I wonder if some of you have actually identified with Jesus in your heart, but you have not identified with Jesus in your relationships. You haven't identified with Jesus in your friendships or in your families. Perhaps you're worried about how they're going to respond to you. You haven't, you haven't identified with Jesus even in your relationship with the church. Maybe you haven't been baptized. You haven't responded in that kind of way because you want to follow Jesus from the shadows. But Jesus, if you experience his power in your life, if you experience his grace in your life, it's not the kind of experience that should be kept hidden. It's the kind of experience that should be drawn out and fleshed out and brought out in the context of relationships. And so you find a responsive faith here being exercised in this woman's life. And as she steps forward and as she begins to interact with Jesus, we begin to be cued in, not only to the subjective nature of faith, all of a sudden Jesus squares himself up as the objective focus of this kind of faith. He puts himself front and center for this woman, and, ex- and she experiences something in his, her relationship with him that is objective and is transformative and definitive. So we move from the subjective side of faith to the objective side of faith. And here's what I mean by that. As you read through these stories you see some incredible objective truths about who Jesus is. Objective truths that should be the focus of our faith in Jesus. These types of truths that can prevent us from being disillusioned in our relationship with him and even in our relationship with the world that we're living in. And so the first thing you see about this dynamic is notice the tender grace of Jesus. You see his tender grace. The moment she comes out from hiding, and she stands in front of Jesus, and she tells him the whole truth about what just went down. Notice how Jesus responds in verse 34. He looks at her, this woman who doesn't have a name, this woman who has no dignity when you compare her with other members of society. He looks at her, and he dignifies her by calling her daughter. Don't you love that? Don't you love the fact that Jesus looked at this woman who came to him not with perfect faith, but with a present faith? This woman who stepped out of the shadows and she doesn't hear rebuke from Jesus. She doesn't hear condemnation from Jesus. She hears daughter. 
a dignified description, tender grace in how Jesus responds to her in this moment. And then he clarifies. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And that's a pretty important dynamic. He doesn't tell her that her touched uh, healed her. Because if that was true, then it would lead many people to think, well, if I'm going to be healed or transformed by Jesus, I've got to touch him. And that leaves all of us out, right? We're not touching Jesus anytime soon. But he says, you weren't healed by your touch. You were healed by your faith, a faith that was personal, a faith that was present, a faith that was responsive. So he clarifies for her as she's interacting with him and the tender grace of Jesus is flowing to her. But not only do you see it in that moment where he calls her daughter, you move on down into Jairus' story and when his story is brought full circle, when he finally arrives at Jairus' house, the girl had died, the daughter is dead and everyone is thinking that it's too late for Jesus to really do anything about her situation. But then Jesus says to everyone who's doubting, everyone who's struggling with this in verse 36, he says, do not fear, only believe. And again, he affirms faith. He says, don't worry about it, don't fear. I've got this. And then he takes his disciples and they walk into, the, into Jairus' home and, and he says, why are you making com commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And everyone laughed because everyone knows what a dead person looks like. These weepers, these mourners were professional mourners. It was very common for someone who dies in the first century for the family to hire professional mourners to come and to weep and to well in order to convey the gravity of the situation. This is why they can go from weeping to laughing so quickly because it's probably not sincere. And so they go from weeping to laughing, but then Jesus pushed them all outside because he wasn't going to entertain their not imperfect faith but just flat out disbelief so he pushes them to the outside and then he brings the disciples in and look what goes down in verse 41 he comes near to this little girl and he takes her by the hand and he says to her talitha kumi which means little girl i say to you arise and you see the tender grace of jesus once again when he steps up and he touches this little girl and he speaks softly little girl arise now jesus could have risen her from afar he could have stepped back and spoken a word to bring her back to life. That's exactly what he did with Lazarus in John chapter 11. He spoke a word and he came out of the tomb. But Jesus wanted more in this moment than to display his power. He wanted to display his tender grace. So he refers to the woman he heals as daughter. And he comes and brings his touch to this little girl and speaks, arise. He's showing us his tender grace. But not only do you see that aspect of who Jesus is in this moment, you see his sovereign power as well. Yes, there is power all over this passage. Yes, power flowed from him to bring healing to the woman with the blood issue. Yes, power flowed out of him to bring Talitha back to life, that she would step back up and begin eating food once again, bringing joy and praise into the household. And so you see the sovereign power of Jesus being present here. And what we need to think about as we consider how faith can lift the fog of disillusionment from our lives, we must think about both sides of those dynamics. We have to have room for both the tender grace of Jesus and the sovereign power of Jesus simultaneously in our understanding of who Jesus is. 
And the reason for that is because what you and I are tempted to do, we don't, we don't handle conjunctions very well. We live in a society that wants to push everything into either or categories. Either you're this or you're that. You can't be both at the same time. But understand that Christianity lives in the conjunctions. Christianity is a both and kind of faith. And when you think about who Jesus is, you have to have a category for both his grace and his power, his tenderness and his sovereignty. Because if you put a wedge between those two, you risk disillusionment. You risk disillusionment because on one hand, if you're all about the tender grace of Jesus, but you have no room for his sovereign power, you're going to have a relationship with, with Jesus who may care about you, but he can't really do anything about the situation you're in right now. Yeah, he loves you, but he's not strong enough to change you. He loves you, but he's not strong enough to raise you. He loves you, but he's not capable of transforming you. And so you fall in love with a Jesus who may love you, but he's not very capable. But then on the flip side of that, if in your relationship with Jesus, you're not so much focused on his tenderness and his grace, you're all about his sovereign power. You're all about his bigness. Yeah, you may have an understanding of Jesus that is that affirms his power and his strength, that he's capable of doing anything in your life, but you're going to draw the conclusion that he doesn't really want to. He's capable, but he doesn't love you enough to help you. And so when we put a wedge between who Jesus is, focusing on one of those against the other, we risk disillusionment because we don't have a Jesus that is marked out by both his grace and his power. And we take something that's meant to be held together in tension and we erase that tension, and it leaves us in a bad place. See, it's not unlike my experience growing up as a kid. I loved peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. That was my snack of choice. Anytime my mom made me a lunch, I asked for peanut butter and jelly. I never once asked her for a peanut butter sandwich. And the reason for that is because peanut butter is just too dry. If you eat a peanut butter sandwich, it, it's really dry, and it can get stuck to the roof of your mouth, and at times it's very hard to swallow. But on the flip side of that, I never asked my mom for a jelly sandwich because jelly sandwiches were too sloppy. They, can't, they don't really hold together very well. They're just too messy. Well, if you're someone who wants to focus only on the sovereign power of Jesus, your faith runs the risk of drying up and getting stuck on the roof of your mouth. It cannot, you cannot swallow it to affect your heart. You have a God that is capable but not necessarily caring if you're someone who only focuses on the grace of Jesus, the tenderness of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, and you have no category for his sovereignty or his holiness or his justice or his righteousness, if you have no category for those types of things, you're just going to have a sloppy faith, a God who might care about you, but he's not very capable. He's not capable enough to help you. But what makes a peanut butter and jelly sandwich so good is the combination of the peanut butter and the jelly. It's when the two sides come together. That's when you find yourself in the sweet spot. And when it comes to your Christian faith, you find yourself in the sweet spot when you have room for God to be all that he is in your life. And you're not putting a wedge between his character. You're not slicing certain aspects of his character and taking it out and elevating them above any other aspect or any other dynamic to to his nature. And so we consider this this evening, this, this object of 
the focus of our faith, the grace of Jesus and the power of Jesus, the tenderness of Jesus and the sovereignty of Jesus, and all of it converges, in which becomes the ultimate focus of our faith in what we might call the exchange of Jesus. You see, the exchange of Jesus where his tender grace and his sovereign power converge, and you really see it earlier in verse 34. You see it in verse 34 um, where Jesus is, I'm sorry, verse 30, where the woman has come up and she's touched him. And notice what Jesus says again in verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garment? Now, this was an interesting moment because Jesus has shown his power in many ways up to this point. We've seen him show his sovereignty over nature when he calmed the storm. We saw him show his sovereignty and his power over demons and Satan earlier in this chapter. We saw him show his sovereignty and his power when he, when he heals this disease and later when he raises Talitha from the grave or from death. You see his power in this moment, but what's interesting is that in each one of those other instances besides this one, Jesus never sees, never, this type of description never happens. It's not as though in those other moments, Jesus never exerts himself. But here it says that power goes out of him, that he's weakened in this moment because this woman touched him. And so you wonder, what is that about? Why is his response so different in here? Why is he exerting something in this moment? Well, to understand what's going on here and to consider the exchange of Jesus, we've got to step back and think about the nature of this woman's condition. She was suffering from a disease that rendered her ceremonially unclean. You can read about the description in Leviticus chapter 15, but a woman in her situation was exiled from the synagogue as an unclean person. But as you read through Leviticus 15, as you read through all of the book of Leviticus and a lot of the, what's called the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament, you can read through them and get very confused by them because the particulars are very, very confusing. But the purpose of the ceremonial laws is clear. They are there to illustrate the human condition, to illustrate the fact that in our sin we are unclean and something needs to change. And so as the ceremonial laws kind of lay this out by putting all these particular details around particular situations, the way that they're remedied is through sacrifice. The way they are remedied is through the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. And so you just kind of hold that into your mind when you step into this moment in Mark chapter 5 and you wonder why did power escape Jesus when he's touched? Well, the reason for that is because in order for this woman to get strong, he had to get weak. He had to get weak because of her disease. And essentially what's going on here, we're getting a hint about what's going to go down when Jesus goes to the cross. Understanding that ultimately what happens for this woman in this moment is what happens to all of us who put our faith in Jesus. There is an exchange that takes place when Jesus is weakened on the cross so that we can be strengthened. Jesus is broken on the cross so that we can be made whole. Jesus is rendered unclean on the cross so that you and I can be made clean. I'll give you an example. Isaiah chapter 53. Listen to how Jesus' death on the cross is described in this passage. Isaiah 53, describing what Jesus experienced on the cross, this is what goes down. It says, Surely Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. What did he say to the woman? Go in peace. Anticipating what he would later do for her. And then he goes on. And here's the key phrase. And with his stripes, we are healed. With his stripes, we are healed. He's weakened so that we can be strengthened. He's crushed so that we can be made whole. Because, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's the exchange of Jesus. It is Jesus becoming weak so that we can be strengthened. That's ultimately the object of focus of our faith because as disciples of Jesus, we're not just believing in Jesus in general. We're believing in Jesus in a particular kind of way because his death on the cross accomplished something for us. An exchange takes place for those who come to him with a personal faith, a present faith, a responsive faith, trusting in his grace, trusting in his sovereignty. When we do that, an exchange occurs. He takes our uncleanness upon himself and he transfers his cleanliness, his righteousness, his holiness, his power towards us. This is exactly what goes down in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where God made him, referring to Jesus, to be sin even though he knew no sin. He made him to become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. This is the objective focus of our faith. It is Christ crucified and it is Christ risen. And when that becomes our focus... That type of faith can lift the fog of disillusionment because that reminds us that no matter what happens in this world, the God of sovereign grace has got us. We are his children and he is more than willing and more than capable of seeing us through this world, lifting the fog of disillusionment when our faith is fixed upon the crucified and ultimately risen Christ. You see, what this means is that you and I become hopeful realists. Hopeful realists. We know that anything can happen. None of us are immune from suffering or sickness or calamity or struggle. None of us are immune to anything. So we're realists on that front. But we're hopeful realists because we know this Jesus. We fix the eyes of our faith upon Christ crucified and risen. And we know that he's got this. I remember talking to a woman not too long ago, or actually now, a few years ago. And she was disillusioned. Her world was turned upside down in a freakish kind of way. She was surfing the internet. And in college, she discovered online that she was adopted. So she lived her entire life believing she was her mom and dad's natural child. They never told her she was adopted. And so she found out by accident And so that just flipped her world upside down. Just disillusionment crept in. It it really kind of sent her sideways. And so we were talking one day about how to get through that and how to guard the heart in the midst of that and and how to respond to this crazy situation. And and she told me in that conversation, I'm just trying to hold on to God's shirt sleeve. I'm doing whatever I can to have the kind of faith that that can hold on to God in the midst of this. And I remember looking at her in that conversation and encouraging her to flip the script on that. I encouraged her to reconsider that dynamic. I encouraged her to consider how the strength of the Christian faith does not depend upon the strength of a Christian's faith. 
And I told her, it's not necessarily for you to try to hold on to God. That's not where strength is found. Strength is found when you realize that God is holding on to you. Because the bottom line is that the strength of the Christian faith does not depend upon the strength of a Christian's faith. It depends upon the grip of God's grace in the gospel. And it helped in that moment. It flipped the script for her to begin thinking about this God of sovereign grace in a way that helped her through her disillusionment. This gospel was capable of lifting the fog from her life. So in this moment, I'm going to open up the table. I'm going to invite you all to come and to worship Jesus at the table. And as you do, I want you to do so with this line of thinking in mind. Because as you come to the table and you take the bread and you hear the words of the gospel, the body of Christ given for you, and you dip it in the cup and you hear the words of the gospel, the blood of Christ shed for you, you're reminded of how, you're reminded of the objective focus of your faith. You're reminded in that moment of how God's got you. And as you put your, as you square your faith up on that reality, you can find the fog of disillusionment being lifted. And so I'm going to open up the table after I pray for you guys to come and to worship in this way at your own pace. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've not put your faith personally in Jesus, let me encourage you to refrain from coming to the table during this time. And instead, turn your attention to the back of the, the little handout you received on your way in. There's a couple of prayers that may give you some language to help you understand maybe what you're feeling or sensing in this moment. Language to process how you can respond to this Jesus. And so with that in mind, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to open up the table. You guys respond as you fill up. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for your grace and your power. I thank you for the crucifixion and resurrection of your son, Jesus. Thank you for the hope that that instills within us. And as we come to the table tonight, we come to the table in confidence knowing that you've got us. You've got us and not even death itself can separate us from you. You've got us and we are resting in that reality right now. So we're praying we're praying for our faith to be formed in light of that reality in Jesus' name. Amen.